We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. At last, it was 1933. Hitler kept saying that he knew his destiny to become the Chancellor of the Third Reich would be achieved that year. If it didn't, then he would probably have ended up dead by his own hand. Hitler isn't universally loved. Even the man who would become the head of perhaps the most feared state security organisation that has ever existed in the world, the Gestapo, Heinrich Müller, had described Hitler as an immigrant, unemployed house painter. On another occasion, he'd called him an Austrian draft dodger. In 1937, well into the future from where I am right now, with Hitler still hoping that he's going to be appointed the German Chancellor, a local Nazi party official wrote about this head of the Gestapo, Heinrich Müller. We can hardly imagine him as a member of the party. Another internal party memo from that same year said that it could not understand how so odious an opponent of the movement could have become the head of the Gestapo. But that's a fascinating story for another time. So is Hitler going to realise his destiny to become the Chancellor of Germany in the course of this program? If yes, how? Keep listening. Goebbels' wife, Magda, that had only been married for just over a year, has just had a miscarriage on 29 December 1932. Now her life is in danger. During a telephone conversation just after the new year had been rung in in 1933, Goebbels had taken a phone call from the clinic which was looking after her. Her health had rapidly deteriorated. She was being fed through a tube. It didn't look good. Goebbels is staying with Hitler at his mountain home, the Berghof, at Obersalzburg in Bavaria. It's winter, and the road is covered in snow. To get down to the train station, Goebbels will have to take a sled, and that couldn't happen until it was daylight. As soon as it's daybreak on 1 January 1933, Goebbels heads back to Berlin. He would have told you that he was a Christian if you'd asked him. He was certainly no model Christian, though. But you have to wonder if he's praying as he travels on the train back to Berlin, perhaps back to a dead or maybe a dying wife. Meanwhile, the communists are in a celebratory mood The last election results had seen an increase in their vote. Between them and the more establishment, non-violent left-wing party, the Social Democrats, they'd won more votes in those elections than the Nazis. The communists could see victory in their grasp. 
they aren't worried about the Nazis. They should have been. It's their left-leaning, democratically-oriented sister party, the Social Democrats, that they hate so much more than the Nazis. That hatred, incredibly, will continue to blaze even after the Nazis came to power and brutally deal with both of those left-wing organisations. The biggest thing holding the communists back, though, is, well, it's that they aren't ready to thrust themselves forward to take power in Germany. In Munich, next to the Beer Hall, where the Nazi party had been born in 1919, the Hofbrauhaus, is a cabaret venue called Bon Bonnière. Sounds very French to me, doesn't it? Not very German. A cabaret act called the Pepper Mill is performing there. The target of their wit, their sarcasm, is Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Peppermill are militantly anti-Nazi. The master of ceremonies at the Bonbonniere is Erika. She's also part of the Peppermill Act. She fills the role that Joel Grey fills in the movie Cabaret. Happy to see you, bleibe reste stay. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome im cabaret, au oh cabaret to cabaret. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen, comment ça va? Do you feel good? Ich bin euer Konferencier. I am your host und sage Willkommen, Bienvenue. Willkommen im Kabarett, oh Kabarett, zu Kabarett. Leave your troubles outside. So, life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. Each and every one a virgin. 
You don't believe me? Well, do not take my word for it. Go ahead. Ask Helga. She greets the guests when they arrive. She also introduces the performers. She tells the audience that Hitler's a man of lowbrow intellect. One of the Peppermill performers is Therese Geese, a Jew. At one time, even Hitler had thought that she was an excellent entertainer. Hitler declared that she was an artist of the people, the kind only found in Germany. It wouldn't be long before Hitler changed his mind on that. Hitler is taking in some entertainment himself in the calm before the storm. He is attending a performance of his favourite composer, Richard Wagner. It's being performed at the Royal Court and National Theatre in Munich. Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg is on a four-hour performance. And it never lets up tearing on Hitler's heartstrings. Yes, he had a heart. He isn't alone this night. The blonde assistant to his photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, is his date. To Hitler's minders, it isn't good for Hitler to be seen in the company of a female. It could hurt his appeal with the women voters. The young lady is rather sassy and outspoken. She and Hitler have been seeing each other for some time now. Her name, Eva Braun. Eva is really the companion that Hitler needed. She's almost 21, always a snappy dresser, fun. Like Joseph and Magda Goebbels, she is always loyal to the boss. She would have to wait for another 12 years, but Hitler will, at the end, take her to wife. And then she, like all of this close circle of friends, will take their own lives at the end, rather than live without their boss. Today's Monday the 2nd of January 1933. Reinhard Heydrich, the man Hitler would later say had an iron heart, goes back to work after the holidays at the Intelligence Division of the SS. His office is in the elegant suburb of Borgenhausen in Munich. Heydrich's organisation is running out of money. A lot of employees didn't turn up for work that day. They're already out looking for other paying jobs that have a future. Clearly, the Nazi party is washed up. At least something that offers hope for the Nazis will be happening on Wednesday, 4th January. A secret meeting in Cologne at the house of the banker Kurt von Schroeder. Well, Unfortunately, not as secret as Hitler wants it to be. Even back then, there were paparazzi. A photographer is waiting at the door as Hitler arrives. Von Papen suggests to Hitler that they could both, together, form a government made up of the conservative and nationalist groups that had supported von Papen, combined with the Nazis. Hitler graciously declines the idea of sharing the chancellorship, as he had always done. He will be happy, he says, to have people Papen chooses on his cabinet. But there will be no sharing of the top office, not under any circumstances. He couldn't make himself any clearer. After two hours, the meeting breaks up. 
just the beginning of something, or perhaps it's just another dead end. Who is this photographer? Him being there appears to be a mystery. His name, if you want to know it, is Hans Johannesson. He is a retired army captain. He has close connections with Gregor Strasser, that formerly top Nazi who now seems to be threatening to tear the Nazi party in two. The photos of Hitler and von Pepin reached the Taglisch Rundschau in Berlin in time to make the front page of tomorrow's morning paper. What a scoop. Don't tell anyone you heard it from me, but word is out that the editor of the Taglisch Rundschau paid an astronomical bribe to one of Hitler's security guards who gave him the information that gave him the chance to send his photographer to the house where the meeting was going to be held. Now it's Thursday, 5 January. A young communist who had travelled to Germany from America, Abraham Plotkin, wants to catch one of Joseph Goebbels' much-touted fiery speeches. He'd been to see one of his a few weeks ago, and, well, to be honest, it was disappointing and lacklustre. But this time he could feel electricity in the air. This time it was different. A young Nazi stormtrooper had recently been murdered. No one knows who did it. Goebbels told the audience, who by now are whipped up, by him into a frenzy of Sieg Heils, that the Jews were responsible for this young man's untimely death. Goebbels says, The Jews have dominated our national life, our national economy, newspapers and our politics until we no longer have a German people. We have a nation of slaves dominated by a handful of Jews. It is to rescue Germany from the hands of the Jews that the National Socialist Party was organized, and until we do, we are slaves. The stories of von Pepin's meeting with Hitler, what could you make of that? The Nazis had poured scorn on von Pepin when he'd been Chancellor. It wasn't possible that they could be somehow reconciled so soon, could it? One thing is for certain, the average German fears a communist takeover far more than one by the Nazis. The communists were being controlled by Stalin from Moscow. Everybody knew that. The bloodshed in Russia when the Bolsheviks took over was notorious. Now it's Sunday, 8th January 1933. Goebbels' wife Magda is still dangerously ill. Goebbels is beside himself. He confides to his diary, This terrible agony and fear, it's driving me to despair. There is one piece of good news for Goebbels. Hitler phones him. He tells him that he's worried too about Magda. He tells Goebbels he will drive past his place tomorrow and pick him up, and they'll both drive up to Berlin for a visit. Goebbels writes in his diary, I'm so grateful to him. Now it's Monday, 9th January, 1933. Von Papen visits Chancellor von Schleicher. He tells him that Hitler has given up on the hope of being appointed Chancellor. What a liar! Papen tells Schleicher that Hitler had told him 
that he would settle for the posts of Defence Minister and Interior Minister. Schleicher is pleased. Hitler seems to be giving up his hopes now of leading Germany. Schleicher trusts von Papen. He knows that von Papen would never try to hoodwink him. But that von Papen died when Schleicher manoeuvred him out of the office of Chancellor. Von Papen's hatred of Schleicher has turned him into a different man. Now it's revenge motivating him. He will be prepared to do anything to see Schleicher humiliated and forced out of office, just like he was. He hopes that he can get his old job back. Schleicher swallows von Papen's lies. It's still Monday, 9th January, 1933. Von Papen has left his meeting with Schleicher. He's gone straight away to see President Hindenburg. Hindenburg's office is just a few minutes' walk away. Papen tells Hindenburg that Hitler is now willing to join a joint conservative cabinet. This is good news. Hindenburg's pleased. It's music to his ears. He is obviously over Schleicher as the Chancellor, and is looking for someone to appoint in his place. Von Papen told him that it's important for him to keep the lines of communication with Hitler open, but keep it confidential. No one must know, especially Chancellor Schleicher. Otto Meisner is present. He had been in charge of the administration of the President's office since 1920. Von Papen turned to face him now. Not a word to Schleicher about this. Meisner nodded, showing his understanding. Now it's Tuesday, the 10th of January, 1933. Schleicher is meeting with Joseph Reiner, the head of the company that publishes the Vossische Zeitung, the paper that his close friend and confidant, the beautiful Jewess Bella Fromm, works at, publishing her column, Berlin Diplomats. He's giving him his appraisal of where Hitler is at, fed with the false information that von Papen had given him just yesterday. Hitler, frankly, is in a state of despair. I can feel the party crumbling beneath him without it having ever achieved any position of authority. Hitler would never have washed with Hindenburg. For Hindenburg, the Führer was almost as bad as a communist. The Reichstag is soon going to reconvene. If it does, they will pass a vote of no confidence in Schleicher, and he will be forced to resign. Schleicher is putting into play a plan to force the issue. He's let it be known that he will be appointing three new cabinet members. The most poisonous one for Hitler will be Gregor Strasser, the most prominent Nazi to have left the party. It's a lie. It's a bluff. Schleicher waits for a begging call from Hitler not to do it. Hitler is bound to lose his nerve. Only he doesn't. That night, a second meeting, a secret meeting, that is kept secret this time, takes place between von Papen and Adolf Hitler. The meeting this time is in Berlin, at the home of Joachim von Ribbentrop, the man who had married into the Henkel Champagne family. Thanks to this connection, von Ribbentrop is now acceptable 
in the highest levels of Berlin society. And that is a place where Herr Hitler has never been welcomed before. But now things are different. Hitler and von Papen talk late into the night. What does it mean? In my next program, we'll continue this amazing story of how that rank outsider, Adolf Hitler, and his pathetic dreams to become the Chancellor of Germany became a grim reality for the world. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E.